Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Kogel Wine and Film, a perfect pairing. I'm film critic Gary Kogel, and today the much-anticipated arrival of Mary Queen of Scots, starring Sharsa Ronan and Margot Robbie. It's a real-life period drama that does not end well for one of them. And a conversation with sake expert Eduardo Dingler from WineAccess.com. What makes a good sake, and how is it made, and is it really wine? I'm wine expert Haley Hamilton Cogill, and as it is the start of a new year worthy of a bubbly celebration, we'll pair one royal court with a wine inspired by another, Domaine Carneros Cuvée de la Pompadour Brut Rosé. But first, we're going to discuss the film, and yes, Gary does have a little frog in his throat. Been a little sick since the since Christmas, but I really wanted to like, like this film, Gary. I don't think that, that we liked it as much as we had both hoped. Okay, I think it's the most <laughs> disappointing. You know, you two could have a career in radio broadcasting. I think it's the most disappointing of all the big films that have come out for the holidays, and I think of all the films, and maybe because I was looking forward to this film as much as all of them. Yeah. Because we do love a good period film. We do love a film about this because this story's been told four or five times already on Many film. Many times, yeah. And really done very well, actually, on film. But it's, it, And then I noticed that it got 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a first-time filmmaker, Josie Rourke, who's a big-time theater director in England. And originally the, the screenplay was written back in 2007 or eight. For Scarlett Johansson. Was and she supposed to be? She was supposed to be Mary. She was supposed to be Shorsha Ronan. I don't know which one, but I assume okay. she was going to be Mary. Okay. And uh, and then that all fell apart, and like like a lot of film projects do, and then it ends up with the right people in it. But Shorsha Ronan is so good, and Margot Robbie is so good. But I felt like I was watching a really well made film that I had absolutely no emotional attachment to, even though I know how it's going to end up, and I'm waiting for that ending actually. And then the ending's really disappointing. But I just kind of felt like, man, and it's the opposite of The Favorite, which is another period film, Mm -hmm. but in, you know, in a different period. But it just, it just didn't, it didn't resonate with me. I felt like I was watching a a big pageant going on at the end of a tunnel and I'm at the other end and I'm not really like, what is going on there? Everybody's crying and Everybody's yelling at each other, and they're going to war, and none of it felt like crying or going to war. Well, it just didn't seem to, yeah, it's it's like it was a, I don't want to say a cliff note version, because mm-hmm. you're, you're getting, you know, you're getting the gist of it, but the, the, it, it just felt like there were lots of, of, of like looking out into the to the wild wander, and I don't know, it's like the heart of the film just wasn't there, it was a lot of this kind of just 
you know, let's have a let's have a long hold of a face embracing, you know, nothing. I don't know. It of course, just, she's it standing have, on the cliff. And yes, and just but it's not like not like you know when Keira Knightley was standing on the cliff and Pride and Prejudice, and you know that that moment that that'll get your heartstrings. Right. This is just kind of like I I don't. I don't have, I, I don't feel for this person. And that makes me very sad because I should, this is my, you know, it's my heritage. And this I was so stuff. excited about this film and it just didn't, I don't know. It was like a, it, it's like they tried to make it into this very, you know, dr- forced drama filled romantic kind of, I, yeah, it just, it didn't work. For and me. I don't, and I, mean, I don't even know how, very sad, I don't yeah. even know how accurate it is. I um, I mean, I think it is very accurate. I mean, I think that her husband, she did get married. I don't know, you know, if all of everything that we see play out is a hundred percent accurate. I know sure. that, but she did have, I mean, she had a child it was ended up being King James. Her brother did take, you know, the son from, from her and raise the son as, as he was his guardian. And, uh, you know, her country turned against her and she did seek solace basically in England, but eventually that was her, you know, she, she, she was held prisoner essentially. I mean, she, she had a household, but she was, she wasn't free to go and she certainly wasn't free to raise an army and try to get her kingdom back. And they're not sisters, they're cousins. No, they're right? cousins. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yes. They're all from, they're all from the same lineage. I mean, and technically that's the whole issue is that she's, if if you look at, I mean Elizabeth was a she 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 was a bastard she right. you know she's Anne Boleyn's and Henry VIII's daughter and if you look at if you if you truly believe that that Henry had the ability to to divorce Queen Catherine to marry Anne Boleyn then then yes Elizabeth is is you know has the right to that crown if you don't believe that and you you know it was the whole the whole Protestant versus Catholics. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a big religious war, which I think we're still seeing well, all over the world at the today. End of, end, end of the day, the Protestants win. Uh, well, Elizabeth kept her crown. Crown, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the Church of England. Or the Church of England, yes, which, which was, is what we're saying. Yeah, so we're disappointed. Yeah, yeah. It should have been. It should have been much better. But we can uh, drink well. To pair with our Mary Queen of Scots, we're going to uh, look at. Mary's earlier life. Um, So when she was 16, she was wed to the King of France before he died at the age of 18. So she was shipped off from Scotland to France um, and then after his death returned, but thought it would be fun to pair one French queen with another. Actually, she wasn't a queen, but she was a mistress of the French court. She was the official like her title was actually the chief mistress of King Louis the Fifteenth of France. She was a courtesan. She was a courtesan, but she um, she was a marquis. She was um, she was definitely a, a member of the kind of royal court. She was a courtesan in lights. It's a marquis. I'm sorry, it's a bad joke. Oh. she's in lights (laughs) Um, so Domaine Carneros created uh, their Brut Rosé Cuvée de la Pompadour to kind of honor what um, Madame de la Pompadour did she uh, Jean-Antoinette Poisson um, or poison, however you say that in French correctly. Um, the Marquis de Pompadour, best known to King Louis the Fifteenth's uh, court as his chief mistress. I want to say she, um, they met at a masked ball after she kind of went after him. She was young, she was married, but she um, 
she kind of decided that, that she was going to be his mistress. And he already had a chief mistress when I think they first met. But then sadly, I think she was put out or she something wow. happened to her. And That's so complicated. And, um, and uh, Madame de la Pompadour came in and kind of for her entire life held up a... a, a uh, it was a great, she, she was, it was a very well-respected position. I mean, and, and she stayed in that position her whole life and was, and was very, you know, highly regarded within the court as his mistress. Um, but she was also a, she was very well-educated. She was a huge patron of the art. She was um, very into kind of uh, the, this was like the mid 1700s. So kind of promoting Voltaire and, and, you know, kind of making sure that, that Versailles was as, as grand as it could be. She was, she was a, a painter and an artist. She kind of had um, her own talents in addition to just being, you know, the mistress to the king. Um, but she was also, as the story goes, the first to introduce sparkling wine to the French court. Wow. And she kind of famously said that it's the only wine that a woman can drink and remain beautiful. So, um, Domaine Carneros, which is in Napa, um, but owned by Tatinger, the famous um, champagne house in France, uh, created their Cuvée de la Pompadour many years ago, kind of to honor her and honor this, um, the, the bringing of, of champagne to Versailles. And um, kind of, it's it's Brut Rosé, one of my favorites, made, um, you know, it's made sustainably, classic varieties, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, I think a little bit of Pinot Meunier, um, tiny production, not not a big wine, but um, but made dry and as kind of a classic traditional method, um, sparkling wine. Wow. Really beautiful. That's just such a complicated story. Well, you know. And then it ends up being just a beautiful, a really great, sparkling. A really good bottle of bubbles to enjoy on New Year's. Oh, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> you know, when we have a, an average to bad movie, and I'm not going to call it a bad movie, but um, this pairing is better than the film. The pairing is beautiful. Well, and, you know, I, I do, I, I, as much as we wanted so much more, maybe that's just it. Maybe I just went in wanting wanting more from Mary Queen of Scots because it's I just love a great period piece and was looking so forward to it. And and we we like both of those women so much. Margot Robbie is is really grown yeah. into a great actress. Shorsa Ronan is incredible. Yeah, and I think we just had really hoped for. For a little bit more. I think at one point in that movie, I actually said, I don't even like the music score. <laughs> yes, you said the music was all wrong. The, the music, music is completely wrong. Isn't that funny? <laughs> when we come back on Kogel One and film A Perfect Pairing, a conversation about sake. How is it made? How can you tell good sake from bad sake? And we will be right back. You know, it's time to toast a new year, and that means it's time for WineAccess.com. As Gary and I always say, sharing great wine makes celebrating even better, and Wine Access makes it so easy to drink the very best. Absolutely. And how about something different for this New Year's? How about sake from WineAccess.com? Oh, and can I recommend the Canberra Bride of the Fox sake? It's richly textured. It's layered with notes of baking spice. There's also kind of a delicacy to it. It's got a soft style to this sake. And it's on wineaccess.com right now, and it's being offered 
for only $35 a bottle. That sounds fantastic mm-hmm. here. You know, Wine Access's philosophy is that they offer higher quality wines at better prices than you'll find in many stores. Over the past years, their team of experts has tasted over 20,000 different bottles from the smallest vineyards to the most iconic winemakers, and they only select the very best to offer us. Wine Access shares their full story with us as well, where that wine comes from, what makes it so special, and they'll deliver it right to your doorstep. It's so simple. I like that they deliver, and we want you to enjoy these fantastic wines for the holidays. So we've arranged this exclusive limited-time offer with WineAccess.com. You get 20% off these wonderful wines and sake that are already at a great value. Yes, but the only way to get this offer is by going now to our special website. That's WineAccess.com slash Cogill. For full details, go now to WineAccess.com slash Cogill, C-O-G-I-L-L. Welcome back to Cogill Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Now, when was the last time that you had a good glass of sake? Our next guest is one of the leading experts on all things sake. So from Mexico to Napa, from Travignet to Morimoto, he travels the world drinking and judging international sake competitions, and he's the founder of SakeDrinker.com. Please welcome Eduardo Dingler. Welcome, Eduardo. How are you doing today? I'm great. Just enjoying a beautiful winter day. Well, it's a good day for sake, right? Every day it's a good day for sake. Is a winter day a good day for sake, Eduardo? Any time. Uh, especially with, with sake, I mean, you have the, the dimensional part of warming it up or serving at room temperature or cold. So any time of the season is great for sake. Well, that's interesting. I'm going to jump on in with that because I, I think there is a lot of confusion. As I mean, I think that as a whole, sake is a little bit misunderstood, especially in the U.S. I think it's still kind of a, a, a yet-to-be-discovered art in a lot of, in a lot of wine um, drinking communities. But I, I do think that there's con- confusion as to are you supposed to drink sake warm or are you supposed to drink it cold? Absolutely, and you know what? I get that question all of the time. And there's there's a couple of ways to answer that that question or dilemma. So historically, sake uh, was not what it is these days. Meaning, filtration techniques and other methods weren't up to standard. So when you have a, a product that's a little more uh, rustic, if you will, to call it very nicely, uh, when when you heat up sake, you take away a lot of those imperfections. So you definitely make it uh, more palatable, drinkable, and, and really enjoyable. Uh, think about it. If you buy a $3 bottle of Pinot Grigio at the store and you put it in the freezer for 30, 40 minutes and then you enjoy it, it's, it's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It hides away all the imperfections that the wine might have. So same idea with sake. Um, another aspect is samurais used to really enjoy it. Uh, it was sort of a healing medicine when it was warmed up. Interesting. Back in a few centuries ago. So fast forward to this day and age, uh, there's certain sakas that are produced on a, on a more rustic artisan way uh, that benefit from a little heat, a little uh, more room temperature, mm-hmm. and it allows it to have a little more diversity. But the average sake, premium sake, if you will, uh, it's best enjoyed at a cool temperature, let's say anywhere from Chardonnay to Sauvignon Blanc temperature. Wow. It is. That's, that's really interesting because I would almost think that it's a little bit maybe then, <clears throat> excuse me, opposite of 
of wine because you're right. I think of the you know the good porch pounder that you don't really think about um, your your five dollar Pinot Grigio you alluded to. Yeah, drink that puppy super cold and it's completely palatable, especially on a really hot day. But uh, you know, a really great glass of Chardonnay, I would almost prefer it to be a little bit warmer. Just because you yeah. do allow the nuances and, and the, you know, the true flavors of, of the, the wine to come out. so Exactly. It, Just letting the full potential of that, what's in the glass, come out. Sure. Fantastic. So if there's, there's only, and correct me if I'm wrong, Eduardo, but there's only four main ingredients in sake. Is that correct? There is indeed. There's four ingredients um, all of the time, and every once in a while... Just like the Beatles had Billy Preston in the Keys, it's the fifth <laughs> ingredient. Nice. And uh, that ingredient is actually brewer's alcohol. Now, uh, if we have time, I'll tell you a, a quick story historically on why they do brewer's alcohol. Oh, yeah. Um, during the Second World War, the country is in a crisis, um, and uh, civilians and uh, troops have to eat. So the government comes to the brewers, and they said, well, up till now, Sack has been defined by the four ingredients, which is rice, water, yeast, and koji, and we can go into detail with those. But now they say we need to really use less rice so we can feed all these people, and we need you to come up with an alternative. So what they figure out after scratching their heads for a while is if they make a regular batch of sake, and then they add a little bit of brewer's alcohol, which by definition it could be uh, sugar cane, which is the most popular destillate, or um, wheat or sake that's been distilled or whatever it is. So they had to distillate, and then they water it down. So they increase the yields by three folds at least, and they, they realize it creates a different style. It's an uplifter in the automatics. It's a sharp focus in the palate, quite enjoyable. So there's a ban on uh, regular sake, and everything has to be honjozo, as it's called, which means it has the brewer's alcohol. Once the ban is lifted, the government says, well, you played with us, and it turned out to be a great choice, so we're going to allow you to do both styles. So this day and age, a lot of breweries play with both different styles. Interesting. It's, it's, you're essentially, you know, yeah, making a, a somewhat different product, but, but probably something that, that has become a little bit more... But you're, add, you're adding distilled alcohol. To you're, I mean, basically, it's like it's. It would be like I mean, like rum is made out of sugar cane, right. so it's almost just like like taking a spirit and adding it to wine, essentially, right? right. Exactly. It's it's a little different than if you would a uh, Madeira or sherry. You're not arresting the fermentation with the alcohol. Sure. Rather, the the whole sack is fermented in, in a finished product, and then the alcohol is added. Right. Does so, that? Yeah. In a way, it is. Does that change the alcohol level? People usually, when they hear the word brewer's alcohol added or alcohol added, they say, no, 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 I'm not planning on getting drunk tonight. I'm going to skip it. But in fact, the final um, alcohol uh, percentage is fairly the same. It's pretty much the same. Not less sometimes. It's just fascinating. How did you, why sake? How did you become such a a fan of sake and a sake expert? You know, um, I started drinking uh, sake with friends at a local uh, sushi place here in Napa Valley. And it was a, a bi-monthly occurrence, and then it turned into a weekly thing. And it was always this really enjoyable part of it. So uh, a quick quick side note, like people say, oh, I can't drink gin because it makes me angry. Or when I drink tequila, it's just <laughs> different. But with sake, nobody ever says that. Sake always <laughs> puts you in a very happy place. So I think 
thinking back, that's what really was getting me into it. And then I visited a friend of mine who uh, now runs uh, a few restaurants for Michael Mina and makes some sake. His name's Stuart Morris. And he was running a, a restaurant here in town, too. And uh, I asked him for a flight. He brought me three sakes. In my experience, prior was only hot sake. And mm-hmm. this time he brings me three cold filter sakes. And I try them side by side. And it was like turning the TV in color. Oh, it was wow. a, a festival. So I started getting really intrigued and learning about it, uh, more for a pleasurable side. And then uh, later on in life, I, I um, started getting a little more serious and making it a, a career. I was already into the wine and studying wine with the Court of Masters and, and working as such. And I did the breach and I started uh, taking certifications and traveling to Japan. Okay. And we saw this uh, documentary. We watched it on TV one night called The Birth of Sake. And we were so amazed by that film and about the discipline of the process. And it's that seemed like total sake purist to me. <laughs> they're not, they're not oh going to add yeah, anything that to that. taking it to the next level. Uh, only a, a few amount of, of sake breweries work at that capacity this day and age because it is definitely a toll taken on the family, on the people. It's a labor of love. And as you can see in there, the passion is is unparalleled. Yes. But it is definitely a, a painful process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how um, we both of us many years ago took tried to take a, a kind of this is how you understand sake um, class. And it was it was really fascinating. It was at Texon many years ago and um, and just found the whole process just because it's not really my world, but trying to understand it. And the one thing that I really found, in addition to um, obviously the rice, was just the quality of water. And I think we saw some of that in that film as well, as far as um, when the breweries started, like they always had to be, there had to be a really great water source um, for them to tap into locally. So that it's, it's interesting, you know, we live kind of in, in this world where water, you know, really pure, clean water is almost becoming a scarcity. So how is that affecting um, production? So for the purpose of a sake brewery, think about it a lot like a distillery or a beer brewery, uh, where you are, it's the stamp of your product. So unless you have some expensive and, and intricate filtering and uh, altering techniques, but back in those days in Japan, you never had that. So the prefecture where the, the sake brewery sits throughout Japan, um, which is north to south, uh, very much like Italy, I like to think. It's mm-hmm. like colder, alpine in the north, and then the south is like richer, more um, mineral deposits, if you will. So where you are, it's your signature, your stamp. So breweries that sit in, let's say, Niigata, which is on the mountainside on the west, uh, central Japan, mm-hmm. tend to have a softer, cleaner water, where other pockets of Japan, like Gunma or Hiroshima, tend to have a little more richer, more weight in the palate. And that's definitely like one of the biggest indications of a, a style of sake. When you look at a, at a sake list and you say, oh, wow, well, this one's from uh, Hokkaido. That's definitely going to have a softer, more, more velvety style versus one from uh, either even Kyushu from the South Island, if mm-hmm. you will. It's it's so fascinating and it's interesting. Interesting, and I think it's probably like like anything, and as far as understanding wine from one place or another, or beer from one place or another, or as as you say, sake. Like, how do you think the message is is getting across to consumers in the U.S.? I mean, it, do you think that I mean, I know some cultures and, and some, you know, probably parts of the country have really embraced it, but but it does seem like it, it's still kind of a growing, um, 
you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's, no, it's an industry it's that's still growing. At this time and age, uh, well, as a statistic in the last 20 years, uh, from the mid-80s, sake has been on the rise every single year, which is fortunate for the brewers in Japan because at the same time, from um, 1985, the statistics show about 3,000 uh, working breweries in Japan, and this day and age, there's less than 1,400. Mm-hmm. So the exports definitely maintaining some of those alive. Mm-hmm. And what's happening throughout the world, uh, but leading with the United States, is that people are finding it a little more um, uh, almost demystified and easy to have at home. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, people. I, I do some writing, and recently I did a, an article on restaurants, non-Japanese, non-Asian restaurants carrying sake. So places like the French Laundry here in Yonville, uh, Grand, Grand Ashes in uh, mm-hmm. Chicago, um, Enrique Vera in uh, in New York, uh, they're using sake in their completely non-Asian restaurants, mm-hmm. and it's bringing it to a whole new demographic that are really enjoying it, and it it, it showcases that versatility to pair. So that so tell us a, a little bit about that because that you know you think sake, you think sushi, you kind of call it a day. So how are they like? What would what would the classic non um, kind of Asian-inspired pairing be? Like, what are they, are they pairing it with an omelet? Or are so they right off it, the yeah. bat, uh, for instance, Enrique Alberas, who, who owns uh, Pujol in mm-hmm. Mexico City, one of the best restaurants in the world, he is a big fan of, of pairing it with mole. And that, I could not agree more, and I went to try Whoa. it uh, uh, last year. And it's incredible. Mole has all these different spices, and mm-hmm. it's made with 32 ingredients and chocolate, and I don't know if you've had it before, but it's mm-hmm. definitely intricate. Mm-hmm. So when you have... Um, when you encounter with trying to match it with the wine, it could be a little more difficult. Wine has the, the acidity and sometimes a little tannin to it, but sake is very gentle in that sense. And if it's, let's say, an aged sake or a Junmai Daiginjo with a, lot of, with a little power behind it, you have all this beautiful marriage of, of um, sweetness and uh, viscosity that play with the spices and the complexity of the dish. So that's definitely one of my top ones. Um, a lot of the times, one of my personal favorite pairings is pizza and sake. I mean, just a regular pizza napolitana margarita mm-hmm. with a bottle of, of Junmai or Honjoso, it, it doesn't get any better. Wow. Yeah. Hey, thank you for your time today, too. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting conversation for us. Haley and I talk a lot about that one remarkable taster bottle of wine. She gets asked all the time, like... Where were you? What was the glass? What was the bottle? Where were you when he had it? Uh, where's that one remarkable taste of sake for you? Well, you know, as, as everybody knows, that's a hard question to answer. But <laughs> if I had to pinpoint one sake, um, um, in the last few years, I've been traveling to Japan and visiting breweries and, and uh, much like going to a winery in the Napa Valley. But there is one experience. There's this brewery uh, that sits in between the mountain ranges, kind of like Piemontese-style uh, hills mm-hmm. in Niigata. The producer is called Takeda-san, and although he's won several international awards, he's the most humble person. Him and his son run the brewery in the seventh generation. They're on. And the most most fascinating, little homey brewery. So he took us to a, a local fish place last September, and we sat down, uh, we did all the variety of, of the local fish, and he pulled out this uh, Junmai Dai Ginjo, which is the highest expression of the polishing of rice, if you will. Mm-hmm. doesn't make the best sake all the time or, or the worst sake. There's no difference. It's just a beautiful elegance. But what he does is he ages the sake in this demijohns, kind of like 
uh, 18-liter glass containers at a low temperature. And this one sake he pulled out with the uh, Ayu fish, which is a local river fish, was certainly a singing expression. Uh, everything was very simplistic. It was uh, salt, um, a little drizzle of yuzu with the grilled fish. And this sake was just uplifting it, bringing it together, and just creating this, this complexity to it. The sake was almost like a, an aged merceau, if you will. It had mm-hmm. this orange marmalade and mm-hmm. spice and minerality. It was quite fascinating. I've got to say that's probably my aha moment with the sake world. That's awesome. Uh. That's fantastic. And it is. It's, it's when you kind of have that, that pairing, and I think that that's what makes kind of the marriage of, of any great kind of uh, spirit with, with a really great dish so special. So that's beautiful. Totally. I, I can close my eyes at any time and just get back there, and it's just a happy place. Oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. Well, we can too, and you painted a perfect picture for us. <laughs> Thank you. Eduardo Dingler from WineAccess.com, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It is quite a pleasure. You have a beautiful, beautiful day, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you. And happy sake. And happy sake. (laughs) Exactly. Anytime. Next time on Kogel Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing, more Oscar-contending films, either in theaters or on demand, all of them worthy of attention. Um, But for more on our discussion today, please follow our blog on CogillConsulting.com or through Facebook. Be sure to follow Gary on Twitter at Gary Cogill. And to see what we're drinking now, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. And with that, I'm Gary Cogill, and I'm always looking for the next great film. I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of a great glass of wine. Join us next time on Cogill Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Aloha. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.